You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. So whenever we open the Bible to read it, we are hearing God speak. Today we'll be reading through Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles. Uh, The words will be displayed on the screen behind me as well. Let's read God's word together. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting, it returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, Turning to the north, turning, turning, goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before, and of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. Uh, friends, I can, I can say it's a great pleasure to be going through Ecclesiastes with you. I love this book. Um, and if I can make you love it or help you love it or at least help you understand it, then I'll have, been ma- I'll have made good progress. Let's pray and ask God to help us in it. Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means, and the will to put it into practice. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our friends, there is an age you get to when people obviously find it hard to buy Christmas presents for you. Some of you here, not many of you, but some of you will know that age. Others of you, most of you, are too young to have had this experience, but it will come to you in time. Let me tell you how you know that you've reached this age. You can tell when you can tell by when it is that the coffee table books begin to appear. Or the games, or the puzzles, or the assorted bits of clothing, or obscure things that you don't know what to do with, but someone thought you might. Well, I want to tell you that I've reached that age some time ago. I got one of those coffee table books. 
and it was terrific. (laughs) I had an hour or so of reading it and some great quotations to bore my Christmas guests with. You see, it was a book of gravestone epitaphs. So I thought I'd begin my introduction to this very serious book of Ecclesiastes with just a few quotations from that book. Here is one from England. It's written by a wife and addressed to her remaining husband. She says, Grieve not for me, my husband dear. I am not dead, but sleeping here. With patience wait, prepare to die, and in short time, you'll come to I. Now, as it happens, this this woman was quite a wealthy woman, and as it turns out, she left her grieving husband a significant sum of money. And so with great care and deliberation, he did the right thing. He spent some of her money carving a reply to her epitaph. And his words were these words. I am not grieved, my dearest wife. Sleep on, I've got another wife. (laughs) Therefore, I cannot come to thee, for I am going to spend this cash on she. (laughs) Let me give you another one. This one is a tombstone in India of a missionary. Let me read the first three lines of it to you. Sacred to the memory of, this is not his real name, of course, sacred to the memory of the Reverend Joe Bloggs, who, after 20 years of unremitting labour as a missionary, was shot by his faithful native bearer. Directly below the epitaph is a quote from Matthew 25, verse 21. It reads like this. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. A first century tombstone tombstone has this inscription. I was not, I became, I am not. And it's this last tombstone that I want to reflect on in a moment. Let me repeat it. I was not, I became, I am not. As you recognise, these words are not designed to be humorous at all. No, they contain a very serious philosophy of life. This tombstone tells us that the person under the ground assumed that they came from nowhere, they existed temporarily, and they went nowhere. But the owner of this tombstone is not the only one to have a view of life and meaning. I want you to listen to a few others. This one comes from a man called Mencken. He said this, The world is a gigantic flywheel making 10,000 revolutions a minute. Man is a sick fly taking a dizzy ride on it. Ooh, that's cynical, isn't it? Another anonymous writer says, Life is a jigsaw puzzle except you don't know what the picture is supposed to look like and you don't even know if you've got all the pieces. The Greek uh, philosopher Pythagoras said, Life is like the Olympic Games. A few people strain their muscles to carry off the prize. Others sell trinkets to the crowd for a profit. And some just look and see how everything is done. The philosopher Albert Camus said that life was like the task of the mythological 
hero Sisyphus, who was condemned forever to roll a rock up a mountain only to have it fall back again. Leo Tolstoy said this, what is life for? To die? To kill myself at once? No, I am afraid. To wait for death until it comes? I fear that even more. Then I must live, but what for? In order to die. I could not escape from that circle, he says. Somerset Maugham, an English uh, novelist from earlier this century or last century, rejected any kind of religious beliefs. But he couldn't avoid questions of the meaning of life. So he said, if, if one puts aside the existence of God and the possibility of survival is too doubtful to have any effect on one's behaviour, one has to make up one's mind what the meaning and use is of life. If death ends all, if I have neither hope for good to come nor fear of evil, then I must ask myself, what am I here for? And how in these circumstances must I conduct myself? Let's just put all of those aside for a moment. You see, I want you to listen mostly for the moment to Philip Adams. Now, Philip Adams is known for his hosting of Late Night Live on the ABC and the writing of the week and his writing in the Weekend Australian. He's one of Australia's best known atheists. In his book, Adams versus God, he says, I believe and have always believed that life is totally meaningless and that we have no destiny, no purpose, no author. We just are. Well, we are for a little while anyway, and then we aren't. Now, let me tell you, Adams thinks he is new. But of course, our first century tombstone said as much, didn't it? Let me also tell you that Adam thinks he, Adams thinks he is saying something that is particularly offensive to Christians. But that's not the case at all. For Adams is on the side of the angels, even on the side of God and Scripture. And in my view, the right of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes has been where Adams wants to go long before Adams was even imagined. And what's more, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is far more thoroughgoing in his critique of life and death than Philip Adams is. So for today, I want to introduce you to one of the insights of the book of Ecclesiastes. These coming three, four weeks, I hope will be fascinating for you. If I can open up this book for you and help you understand it, then I'll be a very happy man after four weeks. So if it does open up for you, come and tell me so that I can be happy. <laughs> but uh, what the writer does is uh, he chooses to give most of the things we find in life that give meaning and then shoots them down in flames. Let me give you some examples, just to make sure that you see that I'm telling you the truth. The first example comes from the very first verse of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it is the general thesis of this writer. Our writer says to us, absolute futility. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. The point he's making is very clear, isn't it? 
All life is untrustworthy, insubstantial. No endeavour in life will bring permanent satisfaction. All earthly life is subject to the complete absence of meaning. That's really essentially what he's saying. All is utterly meaningless, thoroughly futile. But it's not enough for this writer of the Bible to merely state his thesis. In his book, he methodologically sets out to prove it. He claims that his thesis can be easily demonstrated by experimentation. It can be confirmed by anyone involved in life itself. So let's have a look at him going, having a go at proving his case. Please look at Ecclesiastes 3, uh, Ecclesiastes 1, 3 to 11 with me, that Bible reading we just read, and I'm going to read it again for us. Our author says, What does a person gain for all his efforts and labours under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, panting, it hurries back to the place where it rises, gusting to the north, turning to the south, turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its, in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say about some, anything, look, oh, this is new. Oh, it's already existed in ages past, before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who come after. There will be no remembrance by those who follow them. It is bleak, isn't it? Bleak. But notice what he's saying. Nature History, human existence, existence are a big, meaningless round of repetition. If that is the case, then what is the point of life in it? What point can there be if there's never any real progress? Surely no progress makes useless our effort. Nothing is changed by it or by us. Nothing new is created. Life is meaningless, utterly meaningless. However, there are some of you here already getting uncomfortable tonight. Many of us are not really happy with this. And so we look for meaning in other places, don't we? Where, where would we look for meaning? Well, some of us would look for pleasure. But this writer tried that as well. He's thoroughgoing, this guy. Look at him and listen to him in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 to 11. I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure and enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, ah, it's madness. And about pleasure, what does that accomplish? I explored with my mind and the pull with my mind, the pull of wine on my body. My mind still guiding me though with wisdom and how to grasp fully, how to grasp folly, until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I increased my achievements. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted every kind of fruit tree in them. 
I constructed reservoirs for myself from which I irrigated a grove of flourishing trees. I made, I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female servants or singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. And so I became great and I surpassed all that were before me in Jerusalem. And friends, he did. This is, this is not a lie. He did. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure for I took pleasure in all, its struggle, in all my struggles. That was my reward for all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished, what I had laboured to achieve, I found everything futile and a pursuit of wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 11. Now, let me tell you, this is caustic, isn't it? The writer is very clear and he's a very sharp man. Pleasure is enjoyable, but that's as far as it goes. Pleasure hardly will give you meaning to life. All right. What about work then? Maybe that'll work out. (laughs) Maybe meaning can be found in work. Again, the writer here is unrelenting and truthful to the extreme. Look and listen at chapter 2, verses 18 and following. He says this. I hated all my work which I laboured for under the sun, or laboured at under the sun, because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will take over all my work that I laboured skillfully for under the sun. This too is futile. So... I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I'd laboured under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, skill, he must give it, give his portion to a person who has not worked for it at all. That too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get for all his work under the sun and all his efforts that he labours at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful even at night. His mind does not rest. This too is futile. Now, friends, let me urge you to be as honest as this man is. (laughs) Honest as this man Solomon is. It's devastatingly true, isn't it? The alarm goes off, you get up, you put on some clothes, you eat breakfast, you travel to work, you eat again, you do a bit more work, then you go home, a bit more food and drink, perhaps some TV, which Solomon didn't have, perhaps some work around the house, then you sleep. And then 
Tomorrow it starts again. And one day you say, why? And the answer comes back, who knows? Life is meaningless, utterly meaningless. But then you say to yourself, surely that cannot be true. Are you listening to me today saying, Andrew, come on. If nothing else, surely we're in a better situation than the animals, aren't we? Surely we have some advantage over brute beasts. Or if I were to look out at our little pup, well, not so little now, uh, and say, surely I'm better off than the dog. Again, this writer slams home the truth to us in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 19 to 22. For the fate of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All is going to the same place. All comes from dust. All goes to dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. I have seen that there's nothing better for this for a person than to enjoy his activities because that's his reward. In other words, there's nothing beyond. And who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies or she dies? Ecclesiastes 3, 19 to 22. Now, if you think this writer is particularly depressing, you know what? You ain't heard nothing yet. (laughs) Camus, Sartre, Adams, let me tell you, are in bright sunlight compared to this man. Listen to this from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, since that's the end of all mankind. And the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. When the heart, of the, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in, the heart of, is in the house of pleasure. I wonder if you can hear what he's saying. His point is that if you want to understand life, then you know where to start? Start by going to funerals and reading tombstones. <laughs> A right perspective on life is more likely to be found looking at a corpse being burnt up in a funeral parlour than enjoying a barbecue with friends in the backyard. Now, I'm seeing the smiles now and you're saying, oh, surely not, Andrew, surely not. But that's what this author is saying. I want you to hear it. Because you will not understand this book and you will not understand life unless you do, I think. This is scripture. Sisters and brothers in Christ, I could keep going in the same vein for a long, long time and the ammunition in this book is rich. It's very depressing too. And it's depressing because underneath it all, I think we know that it's real, that he's touched a chord. Harsh experiences has has taught us that the world is like this, often unjust, often cruel, 
often absurd. That's the world we see when we look around closely. It's the sort of world we meet in, the, in everyday life. And that raises some very serious questions for us. And the main question, why? Why? Why is the world like this? Why is the world sometimes what we see it to be? Meaningless, empty, unforgiving and harsh. And friends, if you have not seen this yet, you will probably. Why is the world like this? Well, the Bible has an answer. Its answer starts on which page? Page number one. On page number one of the Bible, God tells us that the world was not set up that way. It was not created as a place without meaning. No, God made it a good place. A place full of potential, full of meaning, full of relationships, where humans could meet with God. Full of peace, full of harmony, full of joy, where God walked through the garden, as it were. Moreover, it told us that fullness was found in dependence upon that creator. Fullness of potential, fullness of joy, harmony and meaning was to be found in dependence upon the God who made this. But the succeeding pages of Genesis and the Bible as a whole tell us that we humans did not like the way God had set up the world. We don't like the idea of an outside invisible ruler of our world. Someone who, to whom we are responsible and accountable. The Bible tells us that the human response to this idea is to say, I am going it alone. It's independence. We choose to be our own lawmakers, our own rulers. Then what the Bible does is name this attitude of independence. What is its name? S-I-N. Then God tells us in the Bible that our independence comes with a cost. We have it, but it comes with a cost. It says that because of our bid for sovereignty, God subjected the world to a curse. He condemned humans to increased and painful toil, to the endless round of daily toil, to meaningless and fruitless existence, like the sorts that we have seen, to the sort of meaninglessness that the philosophers and wise people across all the world have recognised and testified to. Please hear what I'm saying. I am saying what scripture is saying. In other words, to some extent, Camus is right, Sartre is right, Philip Adams is right, Derrida is right. If you look at the world with your senses, if you feel it, touch it, think about it with your mind and your touch, analyse it with your intelligence, then you must come to no other conclusion. Life is meaningless. Utterly meaningless. And in the Bible, God says, it is like this because of what? 
Not because of him. No. It's because of us. Because of human sin. It is like this because humans sinned and God placed a curse on the world. He has given us the sort of world we want. What is the world that we want? Well, we wanted a a world ruled by us, basically. A world with no reason, a world with no purpose, a world with competing priorities, a world human priorities, a world random and meaningless. But having said this, now that I've squashed it all, (laughs) Ecclesiastes is not the final word, thankfully. You see, the author of Ecclesiastes did not believe in an afterlife. That is the original person who penned it. Nor had he ever seen of or heard of Jesus. And with the entry of Jesus into the world, a dramatic change happens. For with Jesus, God acts. And with the entry of Jesus into the world, dramatic changes come. For with Jesus, God becomes, God acts and becomes a human being. In Jesus, God becomes like us. He becomes human. He lives what we live. He experiences what we experience. He experiences the futility and meaninglessness that we all feel so often, if we're honest. In Jesus, God comes into the world, twisted and bent as it is. And he suffers its worst wickedness. Its worst wickedness. The one noble human experiences an ignoble death at the hands of sinful humans. If any death was ever unjust, it is this one. But the Bible says that while he's dying, something incredible happens. The Bible tells us that this God who is human, not just man, this human without sin, takes all the sin of the world upon himself. Before God, he takes that sin and as perfect man, he suffers the penalty due for it. He takes our place before God and takes our curse for sin. And in so doing, he turns an event which was so, so wrong and ignoble, and unjust, and totally devoid of meaning, he turns it into an event of victory and of ultimate meaning. When Jesus dies, defeat is turned into triumph. Meaninglessness is triumphed over. Please hear what I'm saying. This is very, very important. Please hear what I think God is saying in Scripture. When Jesus died, then rose from the dead, he spelt out the possibility of reversing the human situation. He promises 
that is able to change our meaninglessness existence into one that has meaning. He promises to return us to the original situation. In your Bibles, turn to the New Testament book of Romans. And I want you to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Turn it up, this one's well worth looking at together. And look at what the Apostle Paul says. He says this, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You see, you don't squash out the suffering, but you talk about the glory. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed, the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Can you hear that? For we know, says the Apostle Paul, that the whole creation has been groaning together with labour pains until now. We've been experiencing life like that. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we groan too. Why? Because we know things could be better than that and are intended by God to be better than that. We eagerly await for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, this in this hope we were saved. If you're a Christian here today, this is what you were saved for, this hope. But hope that is seen is not yet hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience, says the Apostle. Can you see and hear? He's saying that belief in Jesus means that we can find meaning in this world. That sense of meaninglessness that I spoke about before we who are Christians can find meaning in this world because of what has happened in Jesus. That meaning is a life lived for Jesus. The only one who gives meaning to life. If we accept that Jesus has died to forgive us, if we believe that he has taken the curse off us, then life can have meaning for us again. And this meaning will last past death. It will go on forever. That's the hope that those who are Christians here tonight have. That's If you're a Christian, you share that with me and with the Apostle Paul. We have hope of an existence with meaning, an existence with hope, an existence of peace and harmony with God that will continue forever and ever and ever. So let me return to where we started. The question posed by our, by our writer is whether life has any meaning at all. Whether there was life, then death, then nothing. We found an answer. The answer had three parts. Do you remember it? 
a true and honest examination of the world demonstrates its meaninglessness. The Bible agrees with the philosophers in this. Two, such meaninglessness is imposed on the world by our sin. Oh, don't just relegate it to Adam and Eve. No, no, own it. Your partner. You've done it. Our sin causes the world to be under God's judgment. Because we have cut God out of our world, it no longer the world no longer has the meaning God intended for it. We've created our own little world. Three, when Jesus comes into the world, he takes our punishment upon himself. He enters our meaninglessness and suffers on our behalf. And by doing so, he takes away the curse of God's judgment. Isn't that incredible? Mostly we so minimise what God has done in Christ. Not minimise, but we don't explore its grandeur. The Apostle Paul in Romans, he explores its grandeur. And it is grand. It gives meaning and hope. Notice the meaning and the implications. Meaning in life can be found only when we find a solution to sinfulness. And as far as I can work out, there is only one religion that effectively and efficiently deals with the problem of sin. It is Christianity. The Bible's clear. Jesus alone deals with the problem of sin. Jesus Christ alone deals, therefore, with the problem of meaninglessness. Jesus alone offers meaning to our meaningless existence. Jesus Christ alone is, to use his own words, the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, verse 6. So if you're a Christian here tonight, you have something beyond your wildest dreams. No, no, if you're Christian, you'll know and understand it. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we know that we are helpless to help ourselves and that the Lord Jesus has dealt with sin and meaninglessness and he offers us meaningful existence. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. We pray these things in his name. Amen.